0: For free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome
1: to The Parenthood. When we imagine being parents, most of us are guilty of dreaming of idyllic picnics with beautifully dressed children playing harmoniously in a wildflower meadow while their parents, even more strongly connected by the overwhelming love they have for their children, look lovingly on – I've been a mother now for nearly 12 years and I can tell you I'm still waiting for this moment. But it won't happen, because we're lied to. We're told that motherhood is a bed of roses. We're told that pregnancy and a natural birth are empowering. We're told that once your baby has arrived, your world will be complete. But it's not. There are truly wonderful moments, but just as many truly awful ones. With me today is someone who feels that if we are true feminists, this unrealistic narrative has to change. Eliane Glazer is a writer, radio producer, whose latest book, Motherhood, A Manifesto, argues that throughout the world, mothers are overworked, underpaid, and made to feel guilty about every aspect of parenting. And this is something we need to fix, starting with honesty. She writes, Too often the inevitable downsides of motherhood are hushed up lest young women are put off. Yet the scraps of honesty that escape the school gate's stiff upper lip have always brought me huge relief. Realism is a political act. It builds solidarity and better conditions. Eliane, thank you so much for joining me today. And thank you, too, for such an honest book. You talk freely about your own personal experience um, in terms of motherhood um, in your book. What were you expecting before before you actually became a mother?
2: I think the idealisation of motherhood is everywhere in the culture. You see it in those photos that accompany features about motherhood. And no matter what they're talking about, even if they're talking about a negative aspect, the photo will always have a a laughing mum with her kids. Um and I think also the fact that children we're having less child- fewer children these days, and they're often really longed for and hoped for, and women are going often go through fertility troubles that are also publicized in the media and so this idea that motherhood is really you know people, women are having children later um finding it hard to find suitable partners and so on so once they do have those kids, they're so hopeful and and longed for that actually you know the expectation the expectation is then that they really will enjoy it and appreciate it um so i think there's a great pressure to to find it you know fulfilling and and joyful but i think it's really important to separate out the joy from the difficult aspects and that's what i try to do you know, right from the beginning of the book is to say yes there is the joy and it's you know it's the best of my my life it's also you know the worst or most difficult uh, moments in life but it, it has both and I think it's really important to say yes there's all the good bits but actually let's separate out the the joy from um, this critique of the more difficult aspects so that we don't have to then feel guilty or ap- apologize for not being grateful for not um, acknowledging our privileged status as um, successful mothers Um, So I think it's so important to to be able to hold both things in our minds and I quote um, Adrian Rich, she wrote Of Woman Born in 1976 and she made a distinction between motherhood as experience and motherhood as institution. And she said, you know, let's separate those things out so we can critique the institution of ma- of motherhood, which is about the way motherhood is organised in society and all the difficulties that go, go along with that from the experience. But I think there's also something to say about the experience itself, which is very mixed. And I think maternal ambivalence is one of the constants of motherhood. And actually in the past, ironically, um, many psychologists and, and psychoanalysts were much more accepting of the reality of maternal ambivalence that you have good days and bad days some days you you know you just can't wait to get away from your children but then when you are away from them you know you start looking at photos of them on your phone (laughs) and you wish you could feel like that about them when you were with them rather than just being desperate for them to go to bed and so on um it's a mixed experience um and but I think now we're kind of in with there's this intolerance around maternal ambivalence that actually to even admit those downsides is somehow, yeah, to not know how lucky you are. So, yeah, so that, there's this great, I think, intolerance for that. And the phrases around motherhood, you know, if you complain, you know, there's that really common phrase, oh, so you think, so you're the first person to, to ever have a baby or, um, you know, did, what did you expect Um you know you just got to get on with it you know those kinds of phrases are are really ubiquitous in the culture even now
1: yeah absolutely and the problem is is that it doesn't, it's just so unhelpful. I remember being so shocked at how boring it was. But I mean, I should have been told that and I should have realized that because you go from having, you know, a job that, you know, often you really like where what you've got to say matters, uh, where, you know, your opinion is is really, you know, gratefully received to basically just keeping a little baby alive. I mean, I loved your experience, your 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 description of kind of new motherhood. And you just said, I'm spending a lot of time sitting on the bed in a milk stained dressing gown, and that is what new motherhood is like, and yet none of those cards you buy reflect that at all. Yeah, the boredom
2: was a real surprise, actually. Um, because, as in addition to the tumultuous emotions and the kind of roller coaster, which is you know also difficult in itself, that just the boredom I had a lot of guilt about that. And um, you know, I heard other women saying, Oh, I find my toddler um, really good company. And I found that phrase also kind of weird, like they were sort of, they had they had something to prove, um, because actually, you know, I didn't find my infants good company, you know, I, f- I found that I, I love them, and I, you know, I would do anything for them, um, I would jump in front of a bus for them, but they weren't good company, <laughs> they are now, they're 9 and 11, so, you know, they're funny, and I can talk to them now, but I found that early stage really hard, and... You know, and I found that you know that what I was being told was that you have to engage with your baby, your toddler, you have to talk to them, even though it's a one-way conversation. You have to play with them. But actually in the book, when I was researching the book, I, I found out that even playing with your child is actually quite a modern Western habit that in the past um, mothers were warned off playing with their infants in case it, it made them too pampered or... Um, uh, was sort of overstimulating. So you know, these are modern expectations that you should play with your children. You know, what's a what's a constant across cultures um, is children playing. But the idea that mothers should play with their kids is is a, is a new thing. And I think you know, it's great if you can and enjoy playing with your kids. But I think even just knowing that historical precedent kind of takes the pressure off modern mothers because if you can do it, well then great. But it's not make or break and of course I do play with them but I often find games really boring (laughs) you know learning the rules of a new game it's just you know the 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 last thing I want to do and actually but when they were really young you know I, I often used to try and play with them at home and then just found it sort of I just found it really hard and then I'd just bundle them into the buggy and we'd go out you know into town and often take on you know, some expedition that was way too ambitious and they'd come home screaming and, you know, dirty nappies and but actually it was easier to be out in the world and just pushing them along the roads in a buggy than it was being in that kind of very pressured, intensive domestic space, trying to interact with them. Um
1: and being really bored. Yeah, and
2: actually they were really happy being out in the buggy because everyone relaxed. You know, they looked at the world around them, you know, I could I could sort of gather my thoughts and, um, and, and, yeah, so, and so everyone, so I was relaxed and therefore they were relaxed. And that's really, Um, you know, so too, so much of the time.
1: You know, and all the while they call this maternity leave. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know about you, but when I got to go back into the office, that was way more like leave Mm. um, than, than looking after a toddler for seven days a week, nigh on, 24 hours a day yeah I
2: mean the the transition to motherhood I mean you mentioned you know that this change from being in a very stimulating workplace where your your opinion is valid, valid valued to this um credible sort of domestic drudgery and you know difficult often boring um very challenging isolated work that mothers are doing um and yet yeah the language is all around well you're sort of taking a break and and I think there's a that often fuels a lot of equality within partnerships. So if you're on leave, you're supposed to also then do all the domestic work as well while you're at it. Um, and, and then a lot of women don't actually take proper leave. They're expected to keep in touch with work. And they, but maybe they're doing that as a break, you know, to sneak off and look at their email and feel like they've got that link to the outside world. But I think our culture doesn't... Even though our culture pressures women to be with their children when they're really young... Um, you know, the first three years' movement is very, very strong and vocal. But actually, we don't value mothers. So what happens is you, you leave your high-status workplace um, and then you're doing what what society expects of you and, and actually validates in, in sort of moral terms that you're kind of full-time mother. But it doesn't value motherhood. So then you go and meet friends at, at a party or meet a stranger rather and they say so what do you do and you say oh, I'm a you know I've left my job I'm a full-time mother or whatever, or whatever at that time and their their sort of eyes drift off you know over your shoulder because it's it's just not val- valued as a, as a as a practice i think culture really doesn't really put its money where its mouth is in that respect but um but also not not enough is said about the the loss of status that mother motherhood entails and um, you know, when studies have, have are done about um, the causes of postnatal depression, in interviews with women who suffer from postnatal depression, you know, the, the loss of status is is very often cited as a, as a reason. And yet, there's so much um, prejudice against uh, so-called career women that actually, you know, I think our culture really has a real problem with career women and mothers with who try to to have careers. Um, it's almost like this very intensive perfect parenting as a way for for the patriarchy to kind of get women back into the kitchen it's not a conspiracy theory it's not you know individual men doing this but i think the culture as a whole has found a really good way to to curtail women's equality in the workplace and and to curtail their their legitimate ambitions
1: you know and I, i think that so often women are so different you know I know so many women who've really enjoyed getting back into the workplace. It's a really big part of their identity. It makes them a good mother because when they're with their children, they're really grateful for their time. But they also love this job outside the home that they really like. But I also have, you know, friends and people that I teach on antenatal classes who feel really privileged that they can spend the first I don't know, take a year or six months or three years or even 10 years off to kind of be a sort of full time parent. And I think what we don't acknowledge enough is that neither one is right. Neither one is wrong. It's about us as individuals. And we are so different. And all of us have different positions and different, you know, what we classify as sort of rewarding, that it's very difficult to really judge anyone. And yet we do all feel judged.
0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: And we, and we judge each other. So all these debates, they're like culture wars, really. They're very divisive um, and binary, and they divide women. And actually, you know, I, I respect all women's choices to, to um, be a full-time mother, to, to be a full-time worker outside the home um and for most women it's not an either or you know they're boxing and coxing you know i I, i've spent the last 11 years trying to do both um in various different arrangements and um yeah i mean it's like all of these you know breast versus bottle sleep training versus not sleep training you know women don't make an, an either or choice we're determined by our circumstances and um you know most women have to work for financial reasons and you know a lot of women who would like to keep their careers going are unable to do so because the way that work is structured still makes work combining work with family so difficult which is um, an outrage you know in in the 21st century
1: I do hope though that in the aftermath of this pandemic you know we have shown the world that flexible working can actually work really well and I do hope that we will see a bit of a change in terms of well certainly when I speak to women I just say try and cite this as a an example of how flexible working can work because I do think that is the key for for you know making it easier for parents you know and it should be just as flexible for men as well as women fathers as well as mothers.
2: Yeah it's really interesting it would be so great wouldn't it if it if it forced to kind of rethink of of work but my my worry is that well first of all you know it's been a great backward step for women the pandemic that they've been working at home while well, trying to look look after kids and do home school and um inequality between um mums and dads has has actually widened um you know, even when men were at home they didn't take the opportunity to to do the take on the domestic load more equally Um, which just shows that there's real ingrained resistance towards equality so what I what I want to see is not so much more working from home but actually you know fewer uh, shorter working hours for men and women so initiatives like the four-day week I think would be would be great actually but it has to be I think it has to be instituted top down you know for men and women otherwise men are just portrayed as shirkers and um yeah women if you also if you work from home you know which which mother is going to say right okay it's my day to to go into the office you know I think if it's I worry about the work the sort of flexi working from home hybrid future because um firstly it just means you're trying to email while or have zoom calls while kids are around <laughs> and secondly yeah which woman will say will actually say I don't need to go to the office but I really want to because it's good for my you know the work, my sort of workplace community well no we'll just we'll just stay at home because it fits in with school hours so you know I think yeah I think it needs more structural reform
1: I think one of the most insidious things that I see is this kind of perpetual quest for perfection which is a again a relatively modern you know, sentiment, this idea that we all have to be perfect mothers the whole time. And so we first met actually doing Women's Hour where we were talking, I was asked to come on and talk about anger in the <laughs> in the aftermath of a podcast I'd done where I had admitted that occasionally I lost my temper and occasionally I shouted at my children and I caveated that with, and I apologize. And I was amazed at the kind of the the drama and the the surprise that here was someone who you know admitted to shouting at their children and i've got to say it's something sh- don't we all do it i mean i've never professed to be perfect and yet there is this idea that once you're a mother your flaws just go out of the window and we don't never shout at our children but we do i also
2: feel really strongly about this subject and in my book um chapter 6 is well it's called The Red Mist and it's all about anger and it's such a taboo subject it's kind of my my favorite chapter in the book in a way um I sort of wish I'd been able to put it first but um it doesn't come first in the in the order of motherhood you know you've got to have them first but um so I start with birth and so on and move on from there but um anger is really it's really important subject and I'm really honest in the book about the times that I've lost my temper with my children and I try to be compulsively honest at the school gates you know when I've had a difficult morning and you know I tell my friends at the school gates the worst thing I did that morning and then all of their anecdotes come tumbling out you know in a way that normally you know the stiff upper lip really keeps that stuff behind closed doors. But I really believe in in sharing this stuff because I think that all mothers shout, and I mean, actually, the studies show that you know, the large majority of parents shout, and actually, around half of parents hit, which I think may come as a surprise. I think the 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 numbers are coming down all the time because it's becoming more so. There's more social stigma attached to it, but still very high compared to the, the taboo around talking about it. So what happens is that all this stuff goes on behind closed doors. Mothers just feel terribly guilty and like they're a failure and like it's only them that shouts or hits. And
1: which makes me even more which angry. Which makes them even
2: more angry because they think, right, you know, I've ruined it all, you know, um, I'm in a hole so I might as well carry on digging. But actually normalising this sort of re- everyday reality makes women feel like, OK, so maybe I'm not such a bad mother after all. Maybe I'm a good enough mother, you know, in Donald Winnicott's phrase. Um, and a good enough mother does lose her temper. And and actually in the book, I, I, I interviewed psychologists who, said, who told me that it's healthy for children to see their mothers losing their temper because... Um, it shows them that their behaviour has real, authentic responses in in the people around them, and actually, I think mothers these days that we're we're told to be always calm, always count to ten, and never you know always you know, the the parenting language is all positive reinforcement and leading by example, right? That's what all the parenting websites emphasise. But you know, I I read some really interesting work by by a previous generation of psychologists and psychoanalysts, this man called Harold Searles, who is a psychoanalyst um, earlier in the 20th century. And he told a story about a boy whose parents never showed their anger and they never admitted to their anger. They kind of denied their anger. And so they always stay calm in response to this boy's sort of natural, you know, childish out- tantrums and so on. And after a while this boy started only relating to the family dog because the dog could be relied upon to provide authentic emotional responses to his behaviour. And so yeah, and yeah, so and I, I think we also don't teach children about the the kind of everyday ups and downs of the way people are. And if, if you're surrounded by calm parents who are always modelling perfect behaviour in quotes, it's it's terrible for the child. I mean, I spoke to another fantastic um, psychotherapist um, who told me that actually, you know, a a mother who tries to be perfect is not good enough because then all of the the bad stuff is then put into the child. So the child starts thinking, well, I'm angry, I'm losing my temper, but, but my mother is this picture of calmness. And actually, this is a terrible thing. Then I must be must be really awful person, because because I'm exhibiting anger and she's not. So, and there are all sorts of positive aspects to this. But I think that you know, those times when I've lost my temper with my kids, and I've you know in a fit, I've got them to bed, and then in a fit of self-flagellation, I've gone onto those parenting websites, and they have this zero tolerance approach. You know. It's all about anger management and me time and counting to 10. And I think this is absolutely out of step with the reality of mothers' lives. And it's actually, I think this this gap really needs to be addressed um, in the sort of parenting advice industry, in kind of, you know, public health messaging that, yeah. But also women need more support, you know, the, the times when women, when mothers lose their temper is between five and seven on a weekday evening, when the partner is out at work, <laughs> when the kids are hungry and tired, they often haven't had dinner yet, the mums themselves, and that's the classic time, and I recognise that absolutely, that's the times when I've lost my temper with my kids. And by the way, I don't, you know, I don't condone shouting or definitely not hitting, but the reality is that mothers do lose their temper because they're, a, they're human, and B, they're not supported. So we could do so much to to be more tolerant and realistic about the messages that we give to mothers, but also improving the conditions of motherhood so that there is more equality in partnership. So the the dad isn't always out till 7 o'clock. She's not left on her own with a baby and a toddler um, to, to wrestle them with well,
1: you know, just think about how, like, when I look at my friendships and the people that I connect with, it's not the people that always have it all sorted. It's not the people that always look a gazillion dollars and are never late. When I meet someone, and even if it's someone relatively new, if I can see their vulnerable side because they've just messed up or they've done something really embarrassing that is that I love that person I feel the real connection to that person and there's got to be um, something equal there with our children if our children always see us really measured and really calm and counting to 10 and deep breathing they're probably going to feel less connected to us than if I, they see us messing up And then apologizing and saying, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. Having a laugh about it. Not only are they seeing what's real, but they're also then learning how to deal with their emotions when these emotions are emotions that they're not prepared for or or don't like. But that's something that's going to affect all of us. And I think that that's a really important part of, of mothering. You know, teach your children how to exist when things aren't perfect, as well as when they are. Exactly.
2: And I think, you know, and the importance of apologies. Like, you know, I say to my kids, they're old enough for me to say to them now, look, you know, you've seen me in every emotional state. You know, there is no, there's nothing hidden. There's nothing kind of scary. Like, you know, what does mum look like when she's crying, shouting, you know, throwing something across the room? It, that's not a scary unknown for them. They've seen it. And, you know, I'm not I'm not arguing for kind of limitless, you know, uh, there are limits and there's, you know, we, there's a common sense reality here we, to be reasonable. And I, and, and I know that, you know, we need to say that many children are abused, and, and you know, so I'm not arguing for kind of anything goes, but I think that so many women, mothers who are good enough, you know, we beat ourselves up about this everyday stuff, and I think you're absolutely right. I when I meet a mum, a mother who's honest, it's just immediate connection. I think you're absolutely right. That kids also need to see that, and um, and we have an, and I know that we have an authentic relationship, me and the kids and because and I do I apologize to them um and we talk about you know when things don't go well and they also have learned to apologize otherwise an apology is meaningless you know (laughs) Um,
1: and it's something a lot of adults find hard to do is apologize I know a lot of adults who can't do it and, and, you know, this sort of, this cult of perfection starts even when you're pregnant, this idea of like a perfect birth, which I think is drummed into so many women while they're pregnant by the institution. This, You know, I ended up having a long labor, an emergency cesarean. For me, that was a perfect birth because we were okay at the end of it. And yet I was very much made to believe that it hadn't gone all right because I'd succumbed to having a cesarean, which was totally out of my control. And I feel that it's such an unfair way for women to start what is arguably one of the hardest jobs, feeling guilty about something over that they largely had no influence over. Yeah. And there is no point in feeling guilty about it. That's
2: right. And there's, uh, yeah, I think there's these two, you know, these sort of twin. Um, discourse really one is about perfectionism you have to optimize every aspect of your child's uh, life chances but on the other hand um there's this kind of existential fear that if you don't that if you do 99% not, not 100% it's going to be disastrous for your child you know if you eat if you drink you know a glass of wine every other day in pregnancy is disaster or if you if you don't breastfeed till six months exclusively is going to be a disaster and so i think it's very interesting isn't it this is kind of maximizing every aspect and on the other hand this kind of absolute catastrophic risk which is attached to these really tiny changes you know in either direction that really often don't make any significant difference and yet you know it's absolutely obsesses um mothers when they're at their most knackered and stressed and um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, the pressure, I mean, you know, pregnancy, you know, the way that pregnant women are policed you know, in this incredibly paternalistic, risk-averse way that wouldn't apply in any other area of medicine, actually. You know, the phrases that women are, um, are are kind of bombarded with, like, better to be safe, not sorry, in terms of the zero prescri- prescription on alcohol, which it hasn't actually been proved medically. Um the, a lot of the prohibitions on certain foods. Um, also, the science is really contradictory and doesn't kind of bear out that zero-tolerance message. And also, I think we're, pregnant women are really patronised, and yet we're supposed to be you know, like 100% responsible at all times. I think I found that an, an unbearable combination. I was being sort of treated like a child, and... Um, uh, and, and, and yet, you know, just, you know, avoiding foods just in case. And, uh, and yet I am supposed to be this kind of, ra- you know, responsible adult. And I, it's a very strange combination. And then, yeah, the pressure to give birth in a certain way. I mean, I, I had, um, an emergency cesarean under general anesthetic because I had this rare condition. Um, but I mean, I actually wanted to give birth on a labor wards and I felt pressure to give birth in quotes, naturally, because, you know, as I argue in the book, um, you know, although women should be free to give birth however they want, you know, in a field, in a forest, or in a labour ward, or the elective caesarean, it's it's absolutely up to them, but I feel like there's this cultural pressure to give birth naturally, and
1: yet... if And it's like a competition, <laughs> almost. Yeah. Like, I remember giving birth, and people were like, did you have an epidural? I mean... Yeah. What kind of question is that? I know.
2: It's it's this incredible... You know, the, again, it's so much about the language, you know, like just get on with it, you know, put your head down, you know, uh, this idea that uh, a drug-free birth is somehow more authentic, you know, the authenticity of pain, but also the morality of pain. And this is, you know, mo- childbirth has been talked about in this way for centuries, that women are supposed to feel pain because it prepares them supposedly for... <laughs> these decades of self sacrifice as a mother and this extraordinary kind of punitive and um, punishing discourse towards mothers. Um, I mean I I you know I I, I was pretty traumatised by my first birth and um, and yet I remember the first night that I stayed over on the Labour wards in the postnatal ward and, you know, I just had this emergency, really, really emergency it was so emergency that they didn't even consent me um they just rushed me in because his my baby's heart rate was dropping and it was absolutely hideous so they just kind of cut me open got him out he was fine thankfully but um I was kind of a wreck and I was staying on the ward and I just felt like every time my baby cried I couldn't actually get out of bed to pick him up so I'd call the the um the uh the postnatal midwife and And many of them were lovely but some of them had this attitude like I was kind of making a fuss and I got told off because my baby was lying on my stomach kind of with his head slightly down and I thought well I'm absolutely exhausted like if I was awake there's no way I mean I know how to hold a baby but you know and and historically women you know were kept in hospital for two weeks the baby was taken off to sleep in another place so the mother would get some rest Um, you know extended family would be on hand there was no expectation that you'd possibly have to to look after your baby through the night uh, you know after birth and and yet here we are you know in this age of like supposedly empowerment and choice and feminist progress and yet mothers are left to to cope with this alone I think it's I just don't think we think about it that much because of this idea, idea that okay the baby is fine you know we're we're all lucky everything's fine just
1: you should you should be grateful
2: just get on with it
1: I mean, and also culturally, we're one of the only cultures in the world where we treat new mothers like this. You know, I, I often teach, I teach antenatal classes and I often teach, I was talking to a woman from Mexico the other day and she said, for 40 days, every woman in my country, they are mothered, they are looked after, they are nurtured by their community and they don't go outside. Um, they, Everything is done for them. All they need to do is just adjust, get to know their baby, recover from birth. And in some cultures, that's even longer. I had an Indian. Lady, a couple of months ago, saying so exactly the same happens pretty much everywhere you go. And here we are in the first world, in the most privileged civilized society, supposedly. And yet we treat these women, I mean, look at America, they give women six weeks maternity mm. leave.
2: It's so interesting. And also, women are given examples of, you know, and this is very sort of dodgy, you know, racial stereotypes here, but western women are often given examples like in nct classes of women from non-western cultures who are supposed supposedly give birth really easily you know without interventions or anesthesia um but but they're not we're not told that actually they have all this support after birth and also the stuff about them being able to give birth easily is also a complete myth um so um yeah it's really it's extraordinary i think also you know what often women in 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 the West today, um, the the parenting advice they're given comes from situations wh- which are very different. So, for example, on breastfeeding, you know, women are given um, the advice to ex- exclusively breastfeed six months. That's based on countries which have um, little access to clean water, for example, or like the first three years movement, which. Um, you know it was, had was very well meaning in a lot of ways you know but looking at babies' brains and looking at the effects of the trauma on a baby's brain and arguing that, um, that that those years are really important because that's when the brain is is um, cooked as it were um but actually um, a lot of that research was done in very different situations you know on, on children who have been orphaned you know in, in very growing up in squalid orphanages in Romania you know orphaned after the war the research of John Bowlby and then that research you know on a very different situation is then applied to to women who who bring up children in incredibly sort of materially comfortable and safe surroundings in the in the very highly developed west so I think the perfectionist advice is kind of often derives from situations where things are really very difficult and challenging circumstances, and yet it may, it fuels the perfectionism for mothers who are, you know, doing great.
1: You're right. It's a very blinkered view. I mean, I see often women who, you know, the advice is, your baby should sleep with you. I think it's either for the first six months or the first year of its life, and you're, you know, this is uh, if you, this is advice being given to a huge amount of people, people who might be living in chaotic circumstances where, if the baby's not in the room with the mother, it might be in a dangerous situation because there's other people in the house and animals and younger children that might not know how to protect the baby. And I always say to women, you know. If you are being woken up the whole time in the night because your baby's sniffling or you and you cannot go back to sleep and you find that having them next to you is really disruptive for your sleep, if you, the alternative is for the baby to be safe in their room where you can hear them. That's that's absolutely fine. But I think, because I was thinking, how do we change this? How do we make this different? It's so great that you've written this book, but how do we change it? And I think part of it is, you know, The conversation, empowering women to actually ask questions when they hear something um, like, you should sleep with your baby for the first year of its life, you should breastfeed exclusively. Ask why. And then you ask, does that apply to me? Because very often it doesn't. And then you can make an informed decision that is tailored to you rather than blindly following the kind of basic advice that's given to the whole world. Yeah,
2: exactly. And in the book, I, I try and do three things really. One is to look at the, the science behind a lot of this advice, and I do a kind of digest of the scientific research. To show that a lot of it is much more contradictory and doesn't show the benefits that you might expect from the from the advice industry. That actually most of it doesn't really make much difference either way. Um, and and then I also look at history. So I show that parenting practices, you know, have varied so much throughout history. You know, the mothers taking their kids to work with them, or men working at home historically um i look at you know the network of extend family who brought up children you know it's incredible practices like wet nursing <laughs> um you know where children babies were sent out to to other people to be fed and um and yeah so really and, and a great kind of tolerance towards childcare actually that you know that um That even John Bowlby, who's the kind of the father of sort of child-centered parenting, if you like, um, psychologist in the 20th century, even he said, "Look, mums, you know, if you really need a break, fine, go on holiday, but keep it to a week or ten days, you know." (laughs) And that, you know, most mums I know wouldn't feel bad going away for a weekend. So, um, it really helps to look at the the history and to look at how. Parenting varies so much, and also in other cultures and countries, so that to kind of take the pressure off the idea that, that there's one co- one correct way to bring up your kids. And then finally, you know, to, I talk to lots of psychologists um, and psychiatrists who who offer really um, you know kind of unpick the the difficulties in you know things like maternal ambivalence that they they normalise those very ordinary feelings that mothers have and talk about things like postnatal depression talk about actually well in some ways you know yes it's a mental illness that should be you know treated accordingly but in other ways it's very much on a continuum with the difficulties that non-depressed mothers feel and experience so that depression is actually you know sometimes can be integral to to aspects of motherhood and you know the ways in which mothers are isolated and unsupported today. So, so you know, so these kind of psychological insights really normalise um, ordinary motherhood and the ordinary downsides of motherhood, and make women less feel less alone. So I guess I agree with you. I think part of it is just um, women mothers knowing that their their experiences are shared, um, even though it's not so often talked about openly. Um, these aspects um, so that they feel that they have the confidence to know that they are actually good mothers because the guilt I think I think the guilt is is really undermines campaigns to improve conditions for mothers you know guilt is is so corrosive and so um, it detracts from any kind of sense of indignation or confidence to try and say no actually you know um what about the, the domestic um you know uh, the the mental load and domestic inequality? What about um the four day week and the fact that we haven't sorted out this problem of work um what about support for new mothers? What about challenging women's um um you know lack of autonomy during childbirth? so yes, yeah, so I think when you normalize the reality of motherhood then then you can challenge the guilt and um, the sense that it's just you failing and everyone else is doing a good job. And then it enables women to, to make claims um, to, to try and improve things. I mean, I think the tricky next step is how you then bring those that confidence together, how you scale it up into, into a kind of a, a macro change from others. You know, and I guess with Me Too, you know, that social media-fueled movement, there was, you know, that has, I think, led to some... Change in terms of raising awareness awareness of um, sexual harassment. I think somehow it's harder for mothers. I don't think a social media movement is quite the answer. I think it's more about um, organisations, you know, who are working in this area, um, like um, the Birth Trauma Association or Pregnant Then Screwed or these, you know, Maternity Action and these these great. You know, real world attempts to kind of, you know, or, or um, uh, British Pregnancy Advisory Service are doing great work um, at the moment, um, setting up a non-profit fertility clinic, for example. Um, and um, so, yeah, I think, I think, yeah, well, I'm hopeful that, you know, that, that books like mine and the other books that are coming out, you know, <clears throat> at the same time, trying to, Politicise motherhood and kind of join the dots, um, and really see that we're all encountering the same problems. I'm hoping that consciousness raising will make a difference, and then, and then hopefully that energy being built upon um, by these organisations to actually lobby for, you know, changes in policy and um, you know structural change in society
1: yeah I mean you've called all of this sort of the unfinished work of, of feminism, and it's I think it's quite rare to sort of hear that, but it was it strikes me as so extraordinary that you know as you, you know if you're a working mother, uh, someone to look after your children cannot be uh, a work expense, and yet if you want to hire a, a driver, that can be <laughs> it strikes me as extraordinary and and that is such then a precluder of women going back to work because in the end, by the time they tra- pay for the childcare for their commute it's not worth it. And so they're basically then sacrificing their career and something that they've really enjoyed and worked towards because it just doesn't make financial sense to have someone else look after your yeah. child. And that is just
2: so I mean that, that that just saps energy that each individual mother and it is usually the mother is taking on all of that work of, you know, arranging childcare, whatever it is, you know, finding a nanny on Gumtree or finding a reasonable um, nursery that's affordable. Um yeah you know, it
1: but but you also want them to be good. Want like to it's be good. not just about finding the cheapest That's one. That's right. it. has to, <laughs> and yeah the
2: studies show that daycare is good for kids but it has to be good quality. So it's so much labor that women are taking on um, you know individually in that kind of privatized atomized way. And and yet, you know, I think it just is perpetuated because because um, politicians essentially can get away with it because there isn't that joint pushback. So wouldn't it be great if um if uh yeah if mothers you know were able to to kind of come together on that campaigning front and just say actually you know I'm not um lucky or privileged or <laughs> you know um to be able to to work flexibly or part time you know this is my absolute right, and why isn't it easier to to do that or or to work full time if that's their choice
1: um Exactly, and ultimately, it's you know making it unaffordable is taking away choice, and it's all about choice, as we were talking about at the beginning. You know, some mothers will want to go back to work, and some mothers will just not. And but if you don't give them that choice, then something needs to be done about it. It's
2: also very toxic. I think it's very toxic the debate around um, domestic care, and I think it's been become very toxic that very recently, actually, in terms of, basically, again, it's setting one group of women off against another. So it's very toxic debates on social media about. Um, about women who employ other women to look after their children there's been this recent you know novels exploring that subject and then the coverage has all been about you know privileged mothers hiring less privileged women to look after their um children and you know and of course you know we have to campaign actively for equality for these you know even harder for these less privileged women who also have children who are being looked after by, you know even cheaper forms forms of childcare. so you know clearly we have to look at this but what's missing from this debate is well where are the men why is this i what what is this idea that it's only the mother who is hiring a nanny or, or a cleaner for that matter you know where are the men and also where are the structural solutions but instead we just blame mothers and you know and i see that as very very recent phenomenon which i think is very concerning really
1: Well, uh, Eliane, it is such a joy to speak to you. So many things. I wish wish I'd heard this kind of conversation 10 years ago. Our children are exactly the same age when I was feeling so guilty for feeling bored and unstimulated by being a mother to a child who I loved hugely. But it was just boring, it really was. Um, I'd say it's kind of one of the most challenging times in my life and it took me a long time to admit how bored and unstimulated I was by this sort of utopian thing that I was so blessed to have experienced. <laughs> um, uh, Eliane's book, Motherhood, A Manifesto, is published by HarperCollins. It's available from all good bookshops. Eliane, is there an audiobook? Yes, there is. Yes, I read it myself. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic, because I've got to say, as a mother... Um, I found that stimulating audio material totally changed it for me. I remember at the beginning, I just ended up watching too much daytime TV and it was literally like my brain was rotting. And then a podcast came along and, you know, great audio content that could just keep you company while you were doing sort of menial things. And that was a real game changer for me. So actually, if you're listening to this, don't have much time to read, but have plenty of time to listen. I highly recommend uh, Eliane's book. It will make you, I think, feel so much more confident and uh, powerful in the whole you know job as a mother thank you so much uh, for coming on the parenthood elian it's been a real pleasure thank to you to likewise you.
2: marina it's been lovely talking to you really great thank you so much for having me
1: and thank you all for downloading this episode of the parenthood you can subscribe rate and review wherever you found this podcast you can also follow me on instagram i'm at marina.fogle but in the meantime from elian and me thanks for listening and goodbye